Kachin. Elias Pedersen scores. Kachin scores. Matthew Kachin. What a goal. You're listening to another chance. Great save by Markstrom. Here's Kachin. Oh, what a save by Demko. Rintoul and Sermon. What's going on? How's your Tuesday? Hope you're off to a great start. We're going to make your day better. That's what we do. We aim to do it every single day. Try to do the same for you here on this Tuesday, 960-960 or 650-650. If you want in on these proceedings today, Jamie Dodd most certainly does. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely, Scotty. Let's go. I'm fired up. Lots happening just at the outset of the show here, Jamie. You kind of plan, and then things happen, and you have to adapt and overcome. Not that we'll spend a great deal of time on this off the top, but we should let our listeners know that there is another item line in the ongoing saga of Evander Kane in the National Hockey League, and I don't say that to make light of it whatsoever because these are serious accusations that are being dealt with right now in the divorce proceedings that are playing out, and there's allegations on both sides regarding abuse, one levied by Kane, another levied by his estranged wife. Now there is an investigation into Evander Kane for potentially violating COVID protocols as set forth by the National Hockey League. And you and I both know that this story, which is out there by Elliot Friedman right now, doesn't come to the light of day if it's, oh, he walked into the dressing room and forgot to wear his mask one day. It's not that. It's got to be more than that. But this is just another thing, and it seems to always be another thing over the last few months regarding Evander Kane. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the information we have right now is pretty thin, and there's obviously very good, you know, journalistic legal reasons for that, right? People might be hearing other things, but you can't necessarily run out and report exactly what you're hearing if it's not proven or if it's not well-sourced. But the point you make about, okay, look, they're investigating whether or not he violated COVID protocols. Yes, if this was one instance of not wearing a mask where you were supposed to, one instance of, you know, maybe visiting a, a teammate in their hotel room, something like that, Probably not sparking an entire investigation at this stage. So we don't know what it is, but just the logic of the situation tells you it's more serious than something like that. It certainly does. And if you've been following anything that's going on around the United States, I don't expect any of our listeners on Vancouver side, Calgary side, anywhere in Western Canada that happen to be listening to this to know the protocols in each and every state. But I think we've seen some high-profile cases in the Bay Area, not the least of which involves Andrew Wiggins, something we'll probably talk about throughout the course of today. So we know that where Evander Kane happens to play in the National Hockey League, there are stricter protocols in that area than there are elsewhere. So is this just violating NHL protocols, health protocols of the place that he happens to live? I don't know, but there's something to this, and... The tumult that seems to surround this player over the last number of months, it does leave you wondering about not only his immediate NHL future, but that beyond the next few months. Yeah, that seems like the stage we're getting to, or if we're not, if we're not there already, right, where that is the question. Okay, his future with the Sharks, his NHL future, what, you know, all of that at this point looks to be up in the air for Evander Kane. He is not with the Sharks right now. He and the team mutually agreed. Probably not a good idea to be around the team right now. That was probably the first thing that crept up in the last number of months before more serious matters were alleged. It was his teammates weren't big fans. There were some that went to the general manager and said, we can't have this. We need to move on. That was within the confines of the team. These issues that we're speaking about in the last number of weeks involving Evander Kane, they are far more serious. We will see where this goes 
but it does seem to be one thing after another right now. If we get any further news on this, we will get it to you throughout the course of the program today. You can weigh in at 960-960 or 650-650. Jamie, as you may have noticed, Abbotsford's new tenants, they beat its old tenants last night in preseason action at the Abbotsford Event Centre. And based on the lineups that we saw come out yesterday for the Calgary yeah. Flames or a facsimile thereof and the Vancouver Canucks, that's probably the way it was supposed to go. No big surprise there that that's how things shook out. And, hey, full credit to the lineup that the Flames took. They managed to keep it close for much of the game. I know they went down early 3 nothing, but they came back, kept it close through the second period, weren't able to get that equalizer. Canucks get the victory. But, hey, if as you said, you look at the discrepancy in talent and NHL experience between the two rosters, no big surprise whatsoever that the Canucks came out on top. And there are always good stories, win or lose, in preseason. But this is the, the way it tends to go in exhibition play, isn't it? Hey, your team wins, and it's, man, all these good things happen. Let's yeah. talk about all of these good things. And you have to throw in the caveat of, okay, let's not read into this too much. Connor Garland looked very good in his debut, and he scored the opening goal for the Vancouver Canucks. That's a pretty nice way to welcome yourself to a brand-new province and a new marketplace. Oliver Ekman Larson came out last night, Jamie, determined to show well in his debut. He had a couple of assists last night. He was engaged physically as well. Seemed like a guy with a point to prove and wanting to get off on the right foot and show his new fan base a thing or two. He's putting the bag skate behind him already. It took just that long for OEL to make people forget about the bag skate and show, hey, yeah, actually, I'm an NHL defenseman. I'm a really good, or I have been a really, really good NHL defenseman in my career. We know that's the level OEL is trying to get back to. You cannot draw any sweeping conclusions from his first preseason action again against a roster that is not NHL quality on the other side, but... It's certainly better that he looked good than the other way around. You like it. It's a step in the right direction anyways. Yeah, it's a nice way to start. It's a nice way to start. And when any of these situations come up, you always say, what's he supposed to do? All he can do is play the players that are on the ice yep. against him. And it's not his fault that Calgary iced a lineup that is not normally going to be seen in the National Hockey League. Very few of those players are going to be there. And, hey, on the Calgary side of things, there were positives. There always are. Dan Vladder, who is supposed to be the backup goalie, Dan Vladar, who's going to be the backup goalie to Jacob Marchand this year, he played quite well. Tanner Pearson was the only Canuck to beat him, but he stopped, what, 14 shots last night, or he yep. saved 13 to 14. He was he was quite good. Mikey DiPietro went the distance for the Vancouver Canucks, and while he had a little bit of dip in his play in the second period, he was very good in goal for the Vancouver Canucks last night. Yeah, he was impressive, and, you know, with Mikey DiPietro, he is well-known for his fantastic desperation saves. He got a chance to show that off on a few occasions last night, but he also looked outside of those few moments, you know, calm, confident in net, which is something that I know a lot of fans wanted to see from him. So, yeah, good performance uh, from both goalies. I know I know Vladar didn't play the entire game. He got in later in the game, but DiPietro played well. Vladar played well uh, also. Calgary doesn't have a whole lot of spots at the end. We talked about this with the way they set up their training camp and the way they split their groups up. We have a really good idea, barring injury, and in their first preseason game on the weekend, Tyler Pitlick had a lower body injury, so that may come into play here. But there aren't a lot of spots to compete for on that roster. You pretty much know who Daryl Sutter's going to run out there on night one. We might not know the exact line combinations or the exact D pairings, but we have a pretty good idea of who is going to be there. Interesting that he played Dylan Dubé at center last night, spoke yesterday before the game, a guy who regularly takes a turn on the wing. Just wanted to see where he's at versatility-wise. Don't expect Dylan Dubé to start in the center unless there's an injury to the Calgary Flames on opening night, but 
Sutter said, hey, at some point during the year you get injuries, and I want to know who we can plug in the middle. Yeah, and it was a good showing for Dylan Dubé. I thought he was the best Flame out there, and as you said, doing it out of position is noteworthy as well. You look at the Flames' depth chart down the middle, they're not going to need to play Dylan Dubé at center, barring injuries, but we've talked a lot of, uh, about it a lot with, in the context of the Vancouver Canucks, right, and how some of their new forwards give them so much more flexibility up front, and it's interesting to see Daryl Sutter trying to find a little bit of that for himself, right, and saying, okay, you know what, if I need to, maybe I do have something there with Dylan Dubé at center. It was pretty easy to pick out the Flames, who are opening night roster guys. Andrew Mangiapane was engaged last night, and he, like Oliver ekman Larson, found out the the level that they're going to call cross-checking at this year, at least the standard that they are trying to set. Both players went to the box last night for that infraction, but it's pretty easy to pick out the NHL regulars on Calgary's roster last night. Vancouver, it was much more balanced performance, and there were some players who are not supposed to be here but maybe have a chance to be on the opening night roster that flashed a little bit, Jamie. And I say that because of injury, because of contract situation. There are currently more openings than we would have thought, and that could change. That can change in a heartbeat. The players who are injured, not the least of which is Brandon Sutter, who's not injured but is dealing with fatigue and we don't have any diagnosis as of yet. Hey, he could be back, he could be healthy, and all of a sudden one of those spots is gone. But for the time being, guys like Jonah Gadjevich, who's supposed to be in the AHL and probably is in the AHL, putting in a performance like that last night, it at least leaves the impression in the coach's mind, okay, maybe that's an option, maybe not opening night, but at some point during the year. Well, and at the very least, you got to think that Jonah Gadjevich has earned himself a longer look, maybe, than he was pegged for coming into training camp, right? And coming into the preseason. He's shown enough that he's going to keep himself in consideration longer than probably a lot of people would have expected. And, you know, you're right about the injuries because it's Sutter. It's also Tyler Mott. We don't know exactly uh, when he'll be healthy and good to go, whether it'll be at the start of the season. It doesn't sound like it will. So, you know, we came into the year looking at the Canucks and saying, okay, there's probably that one forward spot on the fourth line that's still open. But now you could look at maybe three or four spots and say, hey, those are legitimate battles. I mean, Alex Chason, who's, who's in camp on a PTO, he's fighting for one of those spots in addition to the younger guys like Jonah Gadjevich. Well, and Chason fits this category of, okay, we know what you are. As long as you look to be in shape, look to be engaged, you're an option for us. And I do think he is a player that the Vancouver Canucks will take a long look at, and depending on where their injury situation is at the start of the year. Like Alex Chason, he's got a shot to be a part of the Vancouver Canucks. If maybe it's the 13th forward. Maybe he's playing when the season begins, depending on where they're at with their injuries and who's available, who is not. And in a case like Chason, you need someone else to usurp that player. And, and Travis Green has been a guy that said this about young players all the time. Hey, there's a spot. If somebody goes out and takes it, there's a spot. But if you don't go leaps and bounds beyond a guy who's regularly played in the National Hockey League, I'm not just going to turn things over to you because of potential. No, it doesn't work like that. So, yes, they there are still veterans there that they need to beat out. And even veterans with maybe less of a profile and less of a resume than Chason, right? You look at a guy like Phil DiGiuseppe, who I, I think is – you know, going to be in very strong consideration for the opening night roster at this point. But even a Justin Dowling, who's played a lot of NHL games in his career, you know, those are players that a guy like Gadjevich, a guy like Will Lockwood, they have to beat out those guys as well. Well, and I said this yesterday, and I think it bears repeating. We didn't hear from Daryl Sutter after the game, but you heard him before the game yesterday. He knew what kind of lineup, and 
he was bringing to town. And with Daryl Sutter and the Calgary Flames, more than anything, Jamie, I just look for when that first cut-down day is. We pretty much know what he wants to get to. The question is, how many games do you want those guys to get together for? How many games are you going to treat as a little more serious? They're a little bit away from that yet. Opening night's still over two weeks away. Flames are going to play their next preseason game tomorrow. Seattle Kraken making a visit to the Saddle Dome. With the Vancouver Canucks, I don't know that they'll will it down quite as fast because of all of those other options we talked about. But when you listen to Travis Green speak last night, hey, listen to what the coach says because he'll tell you what he's thinking. He had a lot of praise for Oliver ekman Larson last night. It was very easy to do and to heap that praise on him. He had a lot of praise for Jonah Gadjevich last night. And when you hear that from the coach, that should stick in your mind as a fan. Okay, there's a guy that he's taking a longer look at. Yep, we heard it first with Jack Rathbone after the game in Seattle, and Rathbone had another, or in Spokane, I should say, against Seattle. Rathbone had another strong performance in Abbotsford last night. Uh, I thought, so you're right. It's important to pay attention to the signals that the coach is sending, and for Gadjevich in particular, you know, it's one thing to hear it for Oliver ekman Larson, and he was good last night. I thought his partner, Tucker Pullman, was very good as well last night, but we also knew, you know, pretty much no matter what those guys looked like in the preseason, they were going to be asked to play major minutes for this team, but for a player like Gadjevich, who, you know, I'm not even sure I would have called him on the roster bubble coming into training camp. I would have put him probably a tier below that, a guy who figured to, you know, get big minutes in Abbotsford to start the season. For him to be getting that kind of positive praise, not recognition from Travis Green, that's a big deal, and that could that could signal that he has moved into that bubble area on the roster. Your point about Tucker Pullman is a really good one, and it's a good one because of the ongoing situation with Travis Hamanick, which we don't have any further resolution on or inkling as to which way it's going to go as of today. That hasn't changed since yesterday. But the situation exists, and the possibility exists here, Jamie, that Tucker Pullman's going to be counted on for more than they bargained for to begin this season, and maybe throughout the course of this campaign, if Travis Hamanick isn't part of things in Vancouver. And we'll wait and see where that goes. I don't want to speculate on that here today, but as for Tucker Pullman, it kind of falls into the same category as Oliver ekman Larson. He can't control what lineup he's facing, All he can do is play his part, and he played that part pretty well last night. Yeah, if you're going up against weaker competition, you want to show that it's weaker competition for you, right? And I thought that's what both guys did. They looked very confident, in control. Tucker Pullman, in particular, I thought showed a little bit more offensive instinct, offensive capability than than he's advertised as having necessarily, right? You think of him as kind of that stay-at-home, shut-down defenseman, but... You know, with his skating, with a bit of his puck skills, he was able to get up in the play and make some plays in the offensive zone. So, yeah, look, it's game one of the preseason for these guys. It's up against an AHL caliber lineup in Calgary. But still, it was a good first effort in a Canucks jersey for both of those players. The Hamannick situation, it doesn't derail contract talks with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson but it possibly delays them. Now, if Travis Hamannick is going to opt out, and he hasn't indicated that that's a thing, we haven't heard from Travis Hamannick, it has just been something that is speculated out there, and people look at the history of a player who chose not to participate in the bubble for personal reasons, not the least of which is an immunocompromised child, which I hope we all have some empathy for. So it remains a possibility. But if you're the agent for Quinn Hughes and Elias Pedersen, you probably want to know what the resolution is there before you take your next step in negotiating. Well, you definitely do, right? And the good thing from the Canucks' perspective about the Hamannick situation is, unlike with Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes, there's a firm deadline, right? Like, we're going to know one way or another by Friday because that's the Mm. deadline for when players have to opt out. Maybe we will, right? 
We know whether he's opting out or not. That right, doesn't but he could not opt everything. out, but then choose not to report or choose to retire after that. That's fair. But at least we have one, not a completely hard deadline, but one pretty significant deadline coming up at the end of the week. The Canucks certainly will be hoping they get some clarity by then. Yes, in the choose-your-own-adventure that is life, one of those decisions has to be made by Friday. Not every decision has to be made by Friday, but one decision has to be made by Friday. And if it is one decision in particular, which is an opt-out, okay, you've got your answer and you've got to proceed a different way. And, all right, I guess Luke Shen's playing a little more than you thought he was going to to start the season. And who's the guy that you can go out and get to rotate in there? Or is it somebody who's a better option on a more regular basis? And what does that guy cost you? And how does that affect what you're trying to do with your two-star players that still are not without contract. We will wait and see. As we look around the National Hockey League last night, did you see Jonathan Drouin? That was a feel-good story, and there's a lot of people rooting for Jonathan Drouin on a personal level, whether you're a Habs fan or not. His openness about his anxiety and his insomnia, it is curried good favor with, I think, most people who root for a good story, myself included. And it was nice to see Jonathan Drouin back in the Habs lineup last night. It was nice to see Jonathan Drouin looking sharp. He had a couple of assists. Great setup to Christian Dvorak for his first preseason marker in Habs colors. Good story last night. Great story, yeah. And as you said, for a lot of human reasons, right? Really good to see Drouin back on the ice playing well for the Habs. Interesting from a hockey perspective, too. What Having a, you know, a fully healthy and at the top of his game, potentially Jonathan Duran could do for that Montreal Canadiens lineup. That, I think that's something not a lot of people had considered because he was absent from the team during their playoff run. But that could be a major boost for that team. Good job last night by him and Josh Anderson and Christian Dvorak playing to Dvorak had four points in that game. Again, it's it's a preseason game. Nobody's lining him up for Art Ross odds right now, but couple of goals for Josh Anderson last night on the power play. Dvorak had a power play goal. As mentioned, Jonathan Duran looking very sharp last night. Did you see who scored for the Arizona Coyotes in preseason oh, oh yeah. action last night? <laughs> oh, yeah, I sure did. And Canucks Twitter did as well. Who else? Who else? Louis Erickson looking good in his Arizona Coyotes debut. Who would have thunk it? And that was in the Kings net. Just for clarification, Louis Erickson scored in his Arizona Coyotes debut, and it was against an opposing goaltender. It was into the right cage as well. We joke. Dylan Gunther had a couple of points in that game, a goal and an assist. So if we're evaluating the trade based on solely last night, Jamie, it's even right now. Yes. It's dead even. And that's definitely, I think this is definitely the way that makes the most sense to evaluate totally. the trade as well, right? Yep. You just add up the points for Louis Erickson and Dylan Genther, add up the points for Connor Garland and Oliver ekman Larson, and there you go. That's who won the trade. I mean, we do have to factor in, we'll see if they get in the lineup at any point, but Jay Beagle and Antoine Roussel into this race as well, Scotty. We should. We really should. Do we have to keep a, a preseason tote board or just a regular season to. tote board between all of these players? Okay. Guys that were traded to the Coyotes, they have three points after last night. Guys that were traded to the Canucks, they have three points. Okay, it's a dead heat right now. It's a dead heat. Good trade. Good trade all around. It was an even trade. <laughs> Perfect. Everybody's happy right now. Yeah, Everybody. exactly. I, I jest, of course. I personally hold no ill will to Louis Erickson. I don't think most people do. It's a contract that is finally gone for the Vancouver Canucks. Wish him the best. Hope things go well for him down in the desert. 
Have a great one, Louis Erickson. And, hey, nice to see a kid come into the National Hockey League, albeit in preseason, and, and Dylan Genther and have a goal and an assist. I'm sure they're happy about it. There haven't been a lot of good news stories around that organization for quite some time. They could use one. Let's put it that way. No, and even just the fact that, you know, their social channels are kind of pumping up Louis Erickson and, oh, here's his here's Louis's media day photo, and he's looking great in Arizona in the Arizona Coyote jersey. Like, that's a tough situation to be in. That roster is pretty, pretty grim. No disrespect to Louis Erickson or any of the other players down there, but there's just not a lot of hockey-related things to get excited about with that organization, to say nothing of what's going on off the ice, right? But it's not as if, oh, man, everything's a disaster away from the rink, but at least we have this exciting team to watch. The team is going to be really, really rough this year. Okay, so do you give the social media team for the Arizona Coyotes credit for that or not? Because that could be seen as just a little social media social media trolling out there. Hey, they could put out a photo of Jacob Chikrin or Clayton Keller in the Kachina jersey wearing the whites. They chose to go Louis Erickson with that one. It, they're working with what they've got to work with. You know what I mean? Like, this is when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, right? And, yeah, I, I understand. They're like, okay, we can have some fun with this. People will notice it because it's kind of unexpected. But it's also, oh, man, that's tough. That's a, When this is one of the players you're pumping up on media day, that's a tough situation. Not tougher than what I saw last night in another sport, another game that was happening. We will get to that next. And one of the great quotes to come out of it, maybe better than anything we saw from this player during the course of the game last night. Maybe hyperbole, maybe not. Also, Donovan Bennett joins us next. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dot. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. I don't know if there's any members of our audience that disagree with that statement. <laughs> Well, I was, I was going to say Jalen Hurts clearly <laughs> clearly hasn't met my three-year-old daughter. <laughs> she, she disagrees with that. I don't know. I, I thought it looked fascinating, so I stared at it for a while. That was his recap of what happened last night against the Dallas Cowboys. And if you watch that game, the quarterback play, for the most part, it resembled that, didn't it? It did. It absolutely did. Jalen Hurts had a tough night, unless you're a Jalen Hurts fantasy owner, in which case he was okay, and there is that divide still right now among us because so many people are engaged in fantasy football, and he was relatively productive. He didn't have the best week of any quarterback in the NFL, but he had a lot better week scoring-wise than other players did, and yet if you watch the Philadelphia Eagles and you watch the way Hurts went about it last night, there were some rough patches, and there's still quite a bit of question marks about there, there are a number of questions, I should say, about the guy that many hope is going to be tabbed the starter for years to come in Philadelphia. Yeah, it's a work in progress, to say the least. And that game just yesterday was really bizarre from an offensive perspective from Philadelphia. I mean, it was a long time into the game, and even though they had scored points because they had gotten the defensive touchdown off the Cowboys like they'd only run a handful of plays they ended up only handing the ball off to running backs three times in the entire game which is a crazy crazy number uh, for an NFL team so it, it was a bad performance from Hertz it was also just a really weird game on that side of the ball for Philly Dallas comes out asserts itself offensively Philly comes back big completion down the middle for Hertz they're going down the field uh, under throws a deep shot down the sideline, yeah. easy interception. Then there were plays that, and this is the this is the real thing with Jalen Hurts, and is it going to get better or is it not? There are some very easy throws on the field right now where he's making the right read and he's not accurate. Is that accuracy going to improve? 
And it's the difference between throwing the ball a yard behind the guy or a half yard in front of the player where it's just going off his fingertips instead of making it an easy catch and you're able to move the sticks. Is that going to get better or is it not with Jalen Hurts? Yeah, that's the question, right? And I I do think he's shown enough that the Eagles, they still have to, they still got to see what they have there, right? Like he's shown enough upside and enough potential that it's way too early to write him off and say that improvement isn't going to come. But you also have to be realistic about where he is, okay? And what he needs to improve on. And you got to start thinking now, is that likely to happen? Can he make those improvements? And if he doesn't, what do we do at that point? He doesn't have a lot of starts under his belt. Like, this is a very new quarterback who, based on the upside, is going to keep starting in Philadelphia. The question is, how long is that runway, and when do you start assessing assessing your other options? I watch the Eagles now, Jamie. They seem so far removed from the team that won a Super Bowl, and it actually made me question, like, did they literally make a deal with the devil to win a Super Bowl? You hear fans of these franchises that have never won and have gone through all of these heartbreaking losses, heartbreaking seasons. Many of our listeners can relate to this, and they say, I would give anything. Like, if my team could just win once, I would give anything. It feels like that's what happened, because since winning the Super Bowl in February of 2018, it's the 2017 Super Bowl, but we all know when it's played. That's only three and a half years ago. They've parted ways with their coach. Their supposed franchise quarterback is gone after well underperforming from what they thought was going to be an MVP-level type guy. And they have lost all of the aura. That's the other thing. They have no aura uh, that is supposed to come with the elite teams in the National Football League once you've been to the top of the mountain. Well, and for a couple of seasons after that Super Bowl win, there were still a lot of people who were very, very high on that overall roster, right? Hey, they've got a ton of depth pretty much at every position on the field. This is still going to be a really good team. And it was easy to kind of point at some of the quarterback play and injury issues for the reasons why they weren't more successful immediately after that Super Bowl win. But now they're just a run-of-the-mill bad team. And it does feel a little bit like we all kind of collectively dreamed that Super Bowl victory. They didn't just win the Super Bowl, Scotty. They beat Tom Brady and the Patriots with Nick Foles going off and outdueling Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. Like, what? That actually happened. Nick Foles catching touchdown passes in the Super Bowl. And, hey, Nick (laughs) Foles came back the next year, Jamie, and he won them a playoff game, the double-doink game against the Chicago Bears. And they actually went to the playoffs the following year either. But both of those seasons, they were 9-7 and football teams that were a shell of the contending team they were when they actually won the Super Bowl. And then it dropped off the cliff. Went from 9-7, and 9-7 to 4-11-1. and They don't look very good again this year. Man, has it gone downhill in a hurry for Philadelphia. On the other side of things, if you happen to be a Cowboys fan, and our next guest is, you're probably feeling pretty good about things last night. Came out, had a tough loss to Tom Brady and the Bucks on opening night for the National Football League this year. They got out a victory against the L.A. Chargers, who were all pretty high on, especially coming off that win in Arrowhead this past weekend. They get that done, and then last night, like Philly had no answer for that offense Dak looked good they were very balanced and it wasn't just Ezekiel Elliott they're giving Pollard the ball quite a bit there they kind of have a two-headed rushing attack they looked very good last night Zeke in particular there was a lot of people who stood out for the Cowboys on offense last night Zeke looked as spry as athletic as punishing of a runner as he's been in a long time I thought that was a really good performance for Ezekiel Elliott Maybe that has Donovan Bennett riding high as he joins us here on this Tuesday morning. Donovan, thank you very much for doing this. How are you today? 
I'm great. How are you? I am well. Are you feeling like you're returning to the glory days of the Cowboys from your youth? I mean, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Jimmy Johnson put in the ring of honor finally. It's amazing to me. They're just doing it now. Jimmy Johnson didn't get smarter in the last year or two. Uh, he was a great coach decades ago. He was a great coach then, but, you know, the owner, Jerry Jones, is very petty, if not an egomaniac. And I think the greatest difference uh, between then and now, the greatest difference between teams that we really consider championship contenders and those who are, are talented, might want to accrue players from that squad on your fantasy team, but you don't have a lot of faith for them to win games in January and eventually February, is coaching. And ultimately, and Dallas looked great, and they had playmakers all over the field, and they, they played an in-division opponent, so it was a big win. But as happy as I am to see them not beat themselves, um, my expectations are only so high on the team because ultimately they don't have much. Yeah, Mike McCarthy doesn't feel like the answer, but it's off to a nice start for him this season. I suppose what feels a little bit different this time around, as you mentioned the players, you're right, it's felt like a fantasy football roster, and they've played like a fantasy football team for the last couple of years. But it's when you see young guys like Micah Parsons making plays like he did last night, balling out every single week, Trayvon Diggs taking one to the house. That's where it feels like there's a little more stake than just the sizzle they've exhibited in recent years. Yeah. And those two names you mentioned are defenses. And it's something that was an eyesore for Cowboys fans and, and uh, something that was an appetizer for Cowboys opponents is that defense. And those are two guys you mentioned that they picked in the first round back-to-back -back years in, in Diggs and Parsons, long, rangy, athletic defenders, the type of defenders that Dan Quinn, now defensive coordinator of the Cowboys, used and utilized in making – the Legion of Boom in Seattle, a championship defense. And so if they can continue year after year, stack influential playmakers on the defensive side of the ball, then we're talking about an entirely different ball game. And so they really took the ability to build a staff away from Mike McCarthy after year one because he brought himself a, a defensive coordinator in Mike Nolan, who was fired from his last he was uh, a coordinator in Dallas. And what you ended up w with was one of the worst defenses in the history of the franchise. But uh, I, I think the real championship teams, the real teams we're considering as being able to, to win it all are teams like Tampa, teams like the Los Angeles Rams, who have playmakers and game changers, game wreckers on both sides of the ball. And Donovan, look, I don't want to spend the whole uh, our whole chat heaping praise on the Cowboys here, but I, I will say watching the game last night and seeing how Dak was playing, I kind of almost had to remind myself that going into the year, you know, the health of Dak Prescott and whether he'd be able to be as effective as he was pre-injury was a major storyline. But I, I, as I said, you know, watching him play these, these first three weeks, it's been really difficult to remember that because he's looked so good. And I mean, just for the future, whether or not you see them as contenders this year, but just for the future of the franchise, that's an incredible positive to see how he's doing coming back off that injury. hundred percent, because uh, that's not the only issue that he's coming back from. He had tears uh, in his eyes during the national anthem, because this was his first home game in Dallas since obviously the catastrophic leg injury that had him carved off the 
field uh, in uh, that very same stadium. And you better hope that he is healthy and playing well because you invested a lot of money in him. You lost that standoff with Dak Prescott in terms of making him one of the highest paid quarterbacks in football. So he theoretically now has to play like one of the best quarterbacks in football. And again, it's been three weeks, but you know, there's obviously always the conversation stops and ends with Patrick Mahomes. Tom Brady is on pace to throw more touchdowns in his forties than he did in his twenties. He's still playing at a high level Stafford with a new lease on life in LA and, and Kyler Murray has been a sensation, but Dak Prescott has been at that level um, if not better uh, than all those names. So it is great that he's healthy back to playing as well. And we saw last night, not afraid to run either. Got the awkward slide, which seems more dangerous than actually taking a hit at times, but has pulled the ball down and, and run. And so it, it is the reason, uh, if you're a Cowboys fan, you are optimistic in the short and long term. It starts and ends with number four. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, Donovan, I wanted to ask you about everything going on in the world of the NBA these days as well, because, you know, the the issue of COVID-19 and vaccinations has really come to the forefront with NBA media days this week. And I know there was the big story uh, in Rolling Stone, I believe it was, uh, about the some of the high profile players in the league who are against getting the vaccination. What has been your reaction to just everything on that issue that's played out in the NBA over the last few days? Oh, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, Let's go. So, we got lots. There are so many nuances and so many uh, repercussions uh, to this issue. One that's not going away. Maybe we'll, we were talking NFL, so why don't we transition and compare the two sports, NFL and NBA. And obviously they have some of the same issues around uh, COVID and having their players vaccinated, putting protocols in place. So far, it hasn't been a major issue in the NFL. And a lot of that is cultural. And a lot of that is realistic based on the differences of the sport. The cultural aspect is this. In the NFL, you are always evaluated on how you are as a teammate, as a member of the organization. And so this issue has been messaged to the players as, hey, your best ability as a player is availability. We need to be able to count on you. We need to make sure you're not stuck with contact tracing or having COVID or having tougher protocols than anybody else. And for us as a team, it is a competitive advantage if everybody here is vaccinated because that unlocks us to be able to do things like have more people in meeting rooms uh, and not having walkthroughs always outdoors. And so everything is about hoisting that Lombardi trophy. And if we do that, all of you are going to get paid. And so we collectively have to do things that are in the best interest of everybody. The NBA is the exact opposite. Not that people don't make sacrifices or think team first, but as a basketball player, since you were young, since you were on an AAU team, since you bust out of your neighborhood to go to a school, often in a different city or in a different part of the country, you've always thought of yourself as an independent contractor, the CEO of your personal brand. And so you've always made decisions about you and you alone and not thought collectively. And we are in the player empowerment era, which is great when it talks about negotiating contracts or owning your own content or speaking up in terms of human rights issues. But it's not so great when some people believe that it's their right not to get vaccinated twice and be around other people indoors. And so here is the rub. When you have Kyrie Irving, someone who is 
on the executive committee of the Players Association saying, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not for this and I should have the right to choose. We have Andrew Wiggins saying that his back is against the wall. He feels like he's being bullied into a scenario. And we shouldn't overstate it. 90% of NBA players are vaccinated. This is a higher percentage than any other part of population. We're talking about the minority here, but it's a vocal minority. And so it is going to be something that we have to see play out in terms of our negotiations between the PA and the league in in terms of what they're going to do. How are you going to compensate players if they're not able to play uh, certain games? Is it unfair to the players in markets where that is the case, but, but you know, they could be unvaccinated in another market. Are players going to say, fine, trade me to an an area where I could play all of my home games and not have to get the jab. And, And this is going to be a rolling issue because as we know, these are things that are coming from local municipalities who are going to be changing their jurisdiction and their needs throughout the year based off of COVID numbers, not based on the NBA schedule. So you could be in a market right now that allows you to do one thing that could change by the all-star break or the trade deadline. And so I really think that going into this season, COVID hangs over the balance of this season, maybe in a way even more so than it would have last year. I agree with you. Donovan Bennett joining us here. It's Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. And you are seeing the downside, if you want to call it that, to catering to your stars. We have ripped other leagues relative to the NBA for saying, look, your players are your product. That's what you need to pump up. The NBA has done an incredible job, and they've empowered their players. But then you look at what the NFL has done saying, look, get on board with these rules or life's going to be difficult for you. The NHL has followed suit with that, proof being the NHL – it hasn't looked for the national interest exemption for its players crossing the border. The NBA has. We've heard that already with the Raptors. NBA players will be able to come in and play despite being unvaccinated. There are some decisions to be made. The NBA is trying to make this work, and it's not being heavy-handed. I think the Andrew Wiggins case might be the most compelling of all because when you're talking about guys like Kyrie Irving and Bradley Beal, Those guys are very stable as to where they're at in their careers. Andrew Wiggins makes a lot of money, but he finally found some stability in his career last year in Golden State, and he happens to play in one of the most difficult markets to negotiate COVID-19 right now. Where this goes is fascinating to me. It is. And can you imagine the scenes in that locker room if, you know, Andrew Wiggins is not going to be able to play in a high leverage situation. Uh, and Draymond Green is in that locker room. What that conversation is going to be like, you know, with Draymond Green's force of will and personality and candor would be maybe the nice way to say um, the way he communicates. It, it, it's, it's going to, you know, literally divide locker rooms certainly, on how you navigate this, on what people are willing to do, and and also the reasoning behind why people are unwilling to do things. Because if it is something relative to a wild conspiracy theory, or if there is just no reason, uh, then, again, you could see why that would be a heightened problem. But I'll give you another locker room. Imagine going into the Minnesota Timberwolves locker room as a player, and the franchise is Carl Anthony Towns, someone who he himself lost 50 pounds to have, having COVID. His father had COVID, was on life support. His mother had COVID. She sadly lost her life. And he's had other family members 
who have lost their lives, uh, you know, in the last year and a half. Imagine if you're another player who not only is so privileged to say, I'm not willing to do this for my own safety, but is willing to put Carl Anthony Towns and thus his family in, in, in jeopardy. Imagine how that is going to play out. And so Damian Lillard has been on the record as saying people have their rights, but what they don't have the right to do is to put me and my family in jeopardy. That's just something he's not going to be about. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in that Rolling Stone article went farther and said that this is a dereliction of duty. As a public figure, not only should these players be vaccinated, they should be leading the call for everyone else in society to be vaccinated. And if they don't, then they just shouldn't be in the league. Full stop. And I don't think he's wrong. Pretty interesting. Dieter Kurtenbach, who's actually going to join us later in the show, reported yesterday that in the hallway after Wiggins left that press conference, one of his teammates, Nemanja Bialica, went by him and said, get the shot. And Wiggins replied to him, tough crowd in there, man. So just an indication of what you're talking about as to what some of those discussions in that locker room are going to look like. And we're not talking about a terribly prominent player relative to some of the names you mentioned, but... That's just part of this ongoing discussion in Golden State. Before I let you go, I do want to highlight the case of what's happening overseas right now in the Ukraine Hockey League, which we don't talk about very often, but you've seen this story. I have seen this story as well. Terrible incident that we all saw a video of. Jalen Smerich, who was a black hockey player in the UHL, we saw what he was subjected to by another player, Andre Deniskin. They are looking at some type of repercussion right now in the Ukrainian Hockey League. I want to highlight what Julian, or pardon me, Jalen Smerik has done here. Jalen Smerik has said, I'm taking a leave, and you guys make a choice. You either get rid of him, or you're getting rid of me. Man, what he is doing, not saying, well, I hope they do the right thing. That takes a lot of courage here, Donovan. No question. And I think... Someone has to do it, and someone's plural has to do it because it, this is an individual, you know, sad case, but it's not an outlier, sadly. It's not an anomaly. And it, what struck me about the video was not just the gesture and how blatant it was, it was how comfortable he was doing it. This is a public setting on national TV uh, in Ukraine, streamed all over the world on the internet, being filmed. And there was no fear, no sense of hiding it. It was, it was just like anything else. And no one really, quite frankly, on the ice thought it was that untoward or, or that unruly that they had a, a terribly adverse reaction. It, 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 this, this was just commonplace. And you certainly, and I don't want to paint the entire sport with, a broad brush because the sport has come a long way and continues to uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion and making it truly a game uh, for everyone. And the vast majority of people who are connected to the sport are great people doing great things. However, there is a toxic aspect to the sport when it comes to race. It's something we can't deny. We would have been shocked if a golfer did that on 18 because it's not that golf is overly inclusive, but that's not baked into the sport. I've never seen someone at the free throw line do that in basketball. But in hockey settings, sadly, we've seen things like this. And there's a quote, and I love quotes and I love cliches, that states, what you permit, you promote. What you allow, you encourage. What you condone, you own. 
what you ignore, you're responsible for. And, and at some point, hockey as a culture has to say, no, we are redefining ourselves. Even though there's a small minority of people who do things like this, we don't want anyone doing anything like this. And so I love the fact that he said, I'm taking my talent and my ability away until you take him away and send a clear message that we're cleaning up the sport for good. Well, and Donovan, to your point about the sport as a whole responding, I agree. It's a fantastic move from Jalen Smerick to say, look, I'm, it's either me or him. But I think also in this situation, what I would really like to see is some of his teammates, right? Some of his white teammates stand up and say, you know, in solidarity, guess what? We're sitting it out until this is addressed, too. I think that's the kind of thing that can make this an even more powerful moment for the sport. You're bang on. And what that is is allyship. Right, you should be just as, if not more, aggrieved that that happened to Jalen, uh, and that he had to go through that. In fact, it, you know, he's quite used to sadly going through scenarios like that, so he's almost conditioned at this point uh, to deal with it. It's part of the rules of engagement of being a black or visible minority hockey player. It's going to take other players who don't experience it firsthand to make actions as if it's firsthand towards them because it is towards the future well-being of the sport that they love, and it's the right thing to do. Donovan, great conversation as always, man. Keep up the great work, and thanks for spending some time with us here today. Enjoy this series that gets going tonight. We didn't even have time to get to the Blue Jays and Yankees. Well, I hope we're still talking about the Blue Jays at this time next week. Same here, man. I am with you 100%. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Cheers, that is Donovan Bennett. He's in Toronto. We will have a conversation about that next because it's the part of sports that we love so much and people detest at the exact same time. And we'll explain why next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. I suppose technically it gets old, but it doesn't get old for me. Most of our listeners, I think, would agree Uplifting, crowd-pleasing tracks, they don't get old. You'll find songs like that on the Headliners playlist on Apple Music, plus more fist pumpers. You'll get rock anthems as well. Listen to the Headliners playlist on Apple Music. Why didn't you text me today, Jamie? Why didn't well, you make your guests available for me? <laughs> First of all, I was enjoying the music a little too much. Second of all, I was not entirely sure where that one was going to fall. I thought it might be on the classic rock playlist because no no – Listen, no disrespect at all to the people putting the playlist together. I wouldn't necessarily call that an uplifting anthem. That's not the first thing that jumps to mind when I when I hear that song. Well, maybe the people who put the playlist together don't see the reads that we are given for the Apple Music playlist <laughs> as well. Probably, so maybe maybe when they're true. curating this list, they don't have that exact criteria to put them together. And there's a Venn diagram where songs like that one cross yes. over between some of the playlists. And just that to one let our listeners me. that one stumped me. Yeah. Well, to let our listeners behind the curtain a little bit, I joked last week. I hope our listeners play along, wondering which category which music playlist that the song we play coming back in the second hour of the show is going to fit into and so you played along yesterday and you were right yes and so i, I wonder if it. i get a text today i no. did not get a text today if you want to text the show at any point you can 960 960 650 650 we do our best to respond on or off the air we've been doing that throughout the course of the morning and that will continue it'll continue on a day when things get big all of a sudden, Jamie, they get really big 
in Toronto, and that extends far beyond the borders of the GTA. Not everybody out here is a Blue Jays fan, but there are a bunch of them that listen to this show. But before we get to the Blue Jays, who were not in action last night, we do have to talk about the two teams that are pertinent to this American League wildcard race that were in action last night, and the Mariners roll, Jamie. Man, did they roll, and they virtually eliminated the Athletics from the pursuit of the postseason. Great call last night on the second home run of the game for Mitch Hanniger. Have a listen. Pretty much, and we don't yep. need that to be a literal thing. It was figurative, of course, but that puts the A's three and a half back of the second wild card position, and now they have all the teams in front of them, Toronto, Boston, and the Yankees, with a game in hand. Seattle gets a half game closer by virtue of that victory, and what a tear this Mariners team has been on. We have talked about the disparity between the underlying numbers and the actual results with the Mariners. They are an outlier In the opposite way, the Jays are an outlier. If you have the type of run differential the Toronto Blue Jays have put up this year, you are a lock for the postseason. Like, that generally translates to wins in a way that very few other statistics do. And the Mariners are the opposite. They're a negative when it comes to run differential, but they've won eight of their last nine. They've won five straight against Oakland over the past eight days, and they are just riding the wave, man. And Oakland's got up 3 nothing in the top of the first of that game in Seattle, right? And you would be, you know, forgiven if you're a Mariners fan for thinking, oh, man, here we go again. They're going to blow this series. They, they just completely rolled over the A's after that. And you got to think probably a little bit of uh, reality setting in for the Oakland Athletics, right? The writing's been on the wall, wall for a while for them, but now it's really, really clear they're not going to be crashing the party of this AL wildcard race. But for Seattle, massive win. And look, it's still, I would characterize it as a long, shot for the Seattle Mariners a pretty significant long shot but they've at least made it a conversation and I'm thinking back to you know the conversation that various uh, kind of not that great NHL teams have we want to play meaningful games in March right well Seattle they're not just playing meaningful games in September they're playing meaningful games in the final week of the season and yeah it can be easy to kind of poo-poo that but for a franchise that has been so desperate for any sort of games with stakes it, it is kind of a big deal for them 20 years. 20 years since this team has been to the postseason, and this isn't a franchise that has this long storied history of great postseason postseason accomplishment. Never been to a World Series, never won a World Series. And while this roster down in Seattle this year, it's nowhere near as star-laden as the Mariners of the mid-90s. There is a commonality that I remember, at least I can see. That team led by Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, the one that won its way into the postseason, in 95. Do you remember what the slogan with that team was? Was that a Soto Mojo, I believe it was, Scotty? That was a little later. The 95 oh, Mariners. Oh, wow. Okay. The 95 Mariners were refuse to lose. And that's there what this go. team is. Like, all of the numbers tell you, and you look at the lineups, like, the Mariners shouldn't be here, but they are. And, again, not everybody out there listening today is a Mariners fan. I think we probably have more Blue Jays fans slightly than we do have Mariners fans listening on the program here today, but it's easy to cheer for a team like that to do something, isn't it? You just look at the lineup they had against Oakland last night, and you go down, there's not a lot of names that jump out and say, oh, man, that yeah, that guy scares me at the plate. Like, they just don't have a lot of those players. 
But hey, they put up 13 runs. <laughs> they found a way to get it done and have a big night in a big game. And I know that there's Mariners fans out there listening. We've talked to media from Seattle, and they probably feel the same way. Yeah, what's going to happen is the Mariners are going to miss by one game because we've seen this time and time again. It shouldn't underscore how well this team has played relative to expectation this year. If they don't make the playoffs, it won't be viewed as a success given the burden of waiting two decades to get back into the playoffs by longtime Mariners fans. But for the players in that clubhouse, it should be viewed as a success by them, even though it may not result in the postseason berth. Yeah, it, it, and it's, as you said, it's going to be hard for the fans to think of it that way because they're just so starved for that postseason action. But it is a legitimately impressive performance by the players. There, there's been times, even earlier this month, Scotty, right, where, you know, I was certainly writing them off. Okay, they're down and out. They're not going to be able to, they, like, finally, you know, the bottom is falling out and the run differential is, and the underlying numbers are catching up to them. And that's the end of the Seattle Mariners. And they've responded. They've responded in a big way here. And the Mariners have been playing playoff baseball last week and this week, and let's be real about this. The playoffs begin tonight for the Toronto Blue Jays. Not officially. These aren't officially playoff games starting with the Yankees tonight, but that's exactly what these games are. This is high leverage. This is little margin for error. The big bad Yankees are in town, and it probably makes you nervous. It might make you a little bit queasy, depending on how your stomach is as a sports fan. (laughs) But this is what sports is all about, Jamie. High-stakes games where there is something on the line. Yeah, they're not going to be comfortable viewing if you're a Blue Jays fan, as I am. It's uh, going to be pretty tough to, to watch, but big stakes, and that's about all you can ask for at this point of the season. Look, it would be great if the Jays were home and cool, right? If their record reflected their run differential and they could just kind of relax for the last week of the season. But it wasn't that long ago. You know, it was not that long ago that we were counting them out completely, that they wouldn't even be in this position, right? When they were really struggling in August. So I'm going to try to enjoy these games one way or another. Why would you be nervous watching Hun Jin Ryu? Why well, would that make you nervous tonight? He's on the yeah. mound. Why would why would you be to bothered Aaron by that? Judge and, and Giancarlo Stanton? Yeah, no, no. Why would that make me nervous at all? No reason whatsoever. His last two starts have been forgettable ones. He's taken extended absence here. This is his first time back since those starts. If there is good news to point to, if there's some history that you want to get you get yourself feeling some good vibes about Ryu tonight, about the Blue Jays tonight, the last time that Ryu had a quality start, it was leading off a series against the Yankees. It began on September 6th. And he was brilliant in that game. Six innings pitched, three hitter, no earned runs. He struck out six. The Jays, they won that game 8 nothing. Jamie. They went on to sweep the Yankees in that four-game set, a sweep that none of us saw coming at the time. And, hey, look, maybe uh, maybe Ryu just needed a little bit of time off, get his body right. Now he's going to be back to the ace of old, right? Not the Ryu we saw more recently. Fingers crossed. Anyways, that's going to be the case. But I like that. Hey, he did it once against the Yankees this month. He can do it again. And let's hope that's how it goes if you happen to be a Blue Jays fan. But you're right. It's going to be a nervous watch, and that's what it should be. And baseball is so much fun at this time of the year. Whether you're a casual who just jumps in in late September, early October once the playoffs get going, or whether you are a hardcore fan. Because baseball is one of those games where there are so many decisions throughout the course of the game, and there's time to make those decisions yourself as a fan. Ooh, should they intentionally walk this guy and set up a double play should they pull the pitcher right now is this a situation where they should pinch it like there's constantly decisions like that and the strategy of the game makes it so fun and the stakes make that 
even more fun. Football is really good that way as well. Like football has a stop and a start between plays, and the strategy of the game takes over at some point. And that's not diminishing hockey or basketball, but they are more free-flowing games in that sense. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Jays fans have never, you know, second-guessed Charlie Montoya's decisions on never. the field, right? So they, no, they, it, it should be it should be really just Jays fans are going into this series thinking. Look, Charlie Montoya's got this on lockdown. Whatever he decides, I'll trust the skipper, right? That's the attitude Jays fans have here? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, that's how <laughs> Jays fans roll. I feel bad for him in this sense. If the Jays have a great week, they get into the postseason, who knows? Maybe they get on a little bit of roll. Maybe they win the wild card game and play the Tampa Bay Rays and win or lose. It's a great series. If that happens... Charlie Montoyo is going to get virtually no credit from the fan base. It'll be because of the players and the talent and the front office will get some shine, but he probably won't get any. If they don't, a big part of the conversation will be about Charlie Montoyo. Yes. You know, it is interesting, though, because I've heard from, well, you're absolutely right, from the fan base's perspective, if they miss the playoffs, there are going to be calls that he is replaced when they find a new manager, right? That is absolutely going to be a thing. But it is interesting because outside of Toronto and outside of the Jays fan base, I've seen people around baseball say, hey, if the Jays make the playoffs, there's a good chance Charlie Montoya is the manager of the year, right? Like that's definitely a possibility here with the way he's guided the team back into the race late in the season. So there's there's still that discrepancy based on how he's viewed in Toronto and how he's viewed around the league. Yeah, Kevin Cash coming out and saying, I think he should be manager of the year. And, like, that could happen. Yep. Like, the Jays could get into oh, yeah. the playoffs. He could be named manager of the year. And when that is generally celebrated by your fan base, if your coach wins the Jack Adams Award, you go, hey, what a great season. And, and boy, did he get a lot out of this team that we didn't see coming. I don't know even how well-received that'll be. Like, will there be any reflection at all on the average fan of going, yeah, maybe I've been a little too hard on this guy. People around baseball feel really good about him. Or they go, ah, you haven't watched the games. You don't know. Yes, that, that's it'll absolutely be the latter. What are these people thinking? They didn't watch every game like I did. They didn't see all the bullpen decisions like I did. That will 100% be the reaction. All right, let's get in to some what they're saying. It's Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd. Let's go, Greg. Keep those texts coming in, 960, 960, 650, 650. We will get back to talking some hockey here, and we'll zip around a bunch of other sports as well. Let's start with Frank Saravelli, who was on Sportsnet 960 and has signed a deal to do some more Sportsnet work, formerly of TSN. Is that a trade? Are we considering this a trade right now? Because I see that Chris Johnston has just signed on with TSN. And he was formerly with Sportsnet, and so he's going over to do some work on the other side, even though he's got a new thing going with the Toronto Star and, and a website. And so he's going to be there inside. Now, Saravelli's doing stuff with Sportsnet despite being with DailyFaceoff.com. I, I like it, too, because it's in the NHL, we'd call it a hockey trade, right? It's, it's a like-for-like -like trade, right? Two insiders switching places. Saravelli, very well respected. I wish Chris Johnson all the best. The good news is, in my opinion, Jamie, for viewers and listeners around the country, is that both will yes. be out there and you're going to be able to listen to them and you're going to be able yeah. to watch them because they have 100%. great information. If you're a viewer or listener of hockey, which all of you are, 
yeah, that's really good news for you, no matter which networks these guys are going to be on. Frank Cervelli did his initial hit, which will be weekly, on Sportsnet 960 today. I know he was on Sportsnet 650 yesterday as well. We were talking yesterday with Nick Kiprios and whether or not there's any pressure point for the Buffalo Sabres, for Jack Eichel. When does that come up? We thought the NHL draft was going to be one of them. Maybe training camp would be another one of them. This is a young man who still has to get surgery, come out of it right on the other side, and get back to his hockey career. Frank Saravelli with an interesting take this morning with Boomer and the boys as to when there might be a new pressure point in the Jack Eichel situation. I think the next pressure point, if you can even call it that, considering Jack Eichel did fail his physical, is opening night on the 12th, because that's when Jack Eichel begins getting paid. Uh, They start to pay out on that $10 million salary, and that's a pretty significant juncture because you're wondering, do they try, do they have any tricks up their sleeve? Do they try and suspend Jack Eichel for this failure? Uh, Not, not because it's a hockey injury, but because of their disagreement with the medical situation that he hasn't done anything to move the ball forward from his end. They've made it clear what their stance is and the fact that they're not cooperating. Obviously they've remained in conversation, but is something like that a possibility that might, you know, cause something to happen, another trigger point. Hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that for the beginning of this season. And I have no idea whether there's a parameter within the CBA to suspend Jack Eichel. You want to create a further divide, that's the way to go about yep. doing it. But Saravelli makes a very relevant point. That's when they have to start paying him, or at least the insurance provider has to start paying him. I would imagine it falls under that umbrella that's not coming out of the pockets of the Buffalo Sabres right now. No, you wouldn't think so, which could potentially make it less of a of, of a pressure point, right, if they're not actually the ones footing the bill for his salary when the regular season starts. But we don't know that for sure. We don't know the exact details of the arrangement. It could still exert a little bit of pressure one way or the other. But you talk about the possibility of suspending him. I mean, doesn't it seem like everyone should be trying to de-escalate this situation at a certain yes. point, right? And that would be the exact opposite of it. That would be escalating it and and driving more of a divide between the player and the team. We had Bill Daly on this program last week, and we asked him, where is the role for the NHL to play? Is there a role for the NHL to play? And he talked about how there was a meeting and everybody wants the same thing here, and he didn't really give us a specific. But this continues to get more contentious. The league, the PA, they're going to have another big meeting. They're going to get together again here. And it's it's very interesting because there are so many reasons why the NHL would want this resolved as quickly as possible. And it's one thing to broker meetings, but I don't know if there's much else they can do after that, right? And I don't know. Is another meeting, is another face-to-face session here going to change things that much? Or are the two sides just too completely dug into their positions? How dug in are they in Ottawa right now? We played some Elliot Friedman clips yesterday from the latest 32 Thoughts, the podcast. He and Jeff Merrick, it was a very newsy edition. There was a lot of talk about Hughes, Pedersen, where it goes from here, how much of it might depend on the Hamannick situation based on his choice and whether that frees up some money for the Vancouver Canucks and certainly in the eyes of the agent, whether they try to go after a little bit more money for their clients, given that increased flexibility, should that happen. As for the Brady-Kachuk situation, here's what Friedman had to say as to where that is at right now. I heard the short-term deals, like they weren't even close, the two sides. 
they did discuss short term and I just heard it didn't go very well. I'm always wary of saying this stuff because the one phone call could change anything. And I could yeah, look yeah. like a total doofus, but I heard that. The long term, like I said, I don't think they were that far in overall dollars, but where they were disagreeing was on bonus structure, potentially trade protection, and you know, Ottawa knows that they're going to have a big deal for Stutzla here at some point. I think they want to hold it down. Eugene Melnick, remember a couple of years ago, he made that crack about the Leafs and how they blew their salary cap. Yeah. You know, I think he's sitting there saying there's a limit to what we can do, but, you know, we'll see. I was going to say, how much of this, if you're Brady Kachuk's camp, if you're going to commit long-term to the Ottawa Senators, you want to know what they are spending their money on and how much they're going to spend. I do believe that has come up in conversation, is Kachuk wants to know what the long-term plans are. Like, I think one of the reasons that DJ Smith got an extension, first of all, DJ Smith's a really good coach. I think we all feel that way. Mm -hmm. He's a really good coach for that team. But I think Brady Kachuk made it very clear he likes DJ Smith. And Ottawa was like, okay, we're not fooling around with this. We agree, and let's get it done. But I do think that's come up, is what's Ottawa going to do? And Ottawa's saying, look, we have some other extensions we're going to have to do here. And I do believe this is all part of the conversation. This is a tricky one because that's how fans approach it as well. And I understand why. And when you're looking at Brady Kachuk or Pedersen and Hughes, as a fan, what do you care most about? Hey, yeah, we want our star players back, but we also want enough money to put the right pieces around them. And and if these guys are really competitive, Jamie, and they really want to win, why wouldn't they do that? Well, some of it comes down to faith in the plan. And you can tell somebody anything you want. I think anyone out there listening has had a boss who said, oh, here's what our plans are for the future. Can they execute on that? Do you believe they can execute on that? Like if they tell Brady Kachuk today, look, if you take $8 million right now on an 8 by 8 deal, it gives us money to go out and get this player. Who's to say said player wants to come to Ottawa? Who's to say they're able to procure that player? It's a really difficult situation to put a player in. And the conversation around that in Ottawa is different than it is in a lot of other markets, right? Because you look at it in Vancouver, okay? And Jim Benning can try to sell Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes on a plan. At least they know that the Canucks spend money, right? They're willing to spend money up to the salary cap. They're willing to now, you know, we think now that kind of the worst of COVID has passed. They're willing to execute buyouts if they have to. They're willing to use some financial clout to get things done. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to convince Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes that you have a solid plan necessarily for the future. That's a whole other question. But in Ottawa, it's okay, it's great. You say you're going to save money on me and then go spend money elsewhere. But you don't really do that. That's not been a, a feature of the Ottawa Senators organization. So it's doubly tough, I would think, to convince Brady Kachuk of that. Well, and and where are the repercussions along the way? So say you're the player and you take the eight-year deal and the plan was in place. And then a year into the plan, some of the pieces around you have been traded because the team fell short of expectation in year one or management has changed. Like, what do you do? Yeah. You, you're you're in a tough spot then. You've committed eight years, and all of a sudden it's not going already the way that you expected it to, the way that you wanted it to. And do you have any recourse? No, not really. Nope. Like you can't just not go really. back and say, hey, the guy that signed me to this deal, and I know Dorian has some term here, but maybe in Vancouver where Jim Bain's got a couple years left on his contract, it's not so simple. Like, do you say to the next group if it goes that way, listen, when I signed this contract, here's what I was told. Yeah, that's great, but we view this organization a little differently than the last group of managers did, so we're going to do what we have to do. 
yeah, that guy's not here anymore. So tough. <laughs> like that that's the answer. That's the only that's the only answer there can be. A lot of answers yesterday in the NBA, a lot of them involving players and their choices about vaccination and reasons as to why they are or are not and pressures that are being exerted exerted from all around the National Basketball Association. This is a pretty funny clip. I thought yesterday, some won't take it that way, but I thought it was pretty funny yesterday. Robin Lopez yesterday speaking. His brother won a title last year with the Milwaukee Bucks. And he threw some shade at some of the comments coming in from others by using that situation of an example to illustrate what he obviously feels, Jamie, is not sound rationale by some of the uh, players around the NBA and their reasons for choosing not to get vaccinated. Have a listen. I'm still not sure the Milwaukee's actually won the championship. I didn't, I didn't watch. I wasn't there. I didn't watch the game myself. So um, I guess I'll go off a basis of, there's got to be some kind of proof. I'll do, I, I'm going to do my own research and figure out if they want it. It's pretty funny. It's very good. It's very, very good. Big shout out to Robin Lopez for that one. That, that got a good chuckle for me. And I know it will not be taken that way as some, but that was him basically rolling his eyes at some of what he's been hearing from prominent players around the NBA. The pandemic ends for no one until it ends for everyone. UNICEF is leading the procurement and delivery of 2 billion COVID-19 vaccines to countries around the world. An effort of this scale has never been done before. By donating to UNICEF Canada by September 30th, Canadians have the opportunity to make a difference and support the vaccination of millions of people in lower-income countries. Every dollar donated by September 30th will be matched by the Canadian government. Donate today at unicef.ca or text vaccines to 5, pardon me, Text vaccines to four five six seven eight to donate ten dollars. It's rental and sermon with Jamie Dodd. Eric Francis joins us next. A conversation many would have been thinking we were having at this time a year ago isn't really being talked about. Where does it stand? We'll explain next. You jacked up for Tuesday night football, Jamie? Tuesday night football, Scotty. Yeah, Tuesday night football tonight. There's a game. Tell me more. That was kind of my point. The CFL has a game tonight. Ottawa and Edmonton are playing tonight. And I understand the uniqueness of nine teams in the league and scheduling difficulties. And obviously with what happened with Edmonton earlier this season, some things got thrown into the blender. But this has been a constant complaint of many who love the league for a very long time. You're not quite sure when the games are going on. I think if you ask the average sports fan today, if they knew there was a game tonight, they would have said no. Yep, I think that's 100% correct. And there's actually a really unique storyline coming into this game, and we're not going to get into it in any great detail on the show today, but for the first time since 1994, a team in the CFL is going to dress two quarterbacks, like their entire quarterback stable tonight in this game for Ottawa, is going to be comprised of players who have never played a down in the Canadian Football League. They got beset by injuries last week, and the story was, Oh, do they need to dress three quarterbacks? Well, like in every other roster decision, it's your choice. If you want to dress three quarterbacks because you're worried about injury, you want to dress an extra offensive lineman, D-lineman, secondary player, you want to dress a different kicker and a different punter, or you want one person to do all three, that's up to you. That's how you manage your roster. That's part of the strategy of the game. Pretty interesting storyline for the, for the first time since 94, and that was a year where longtime CFL fans will remember the league expanded. Yes. down into the States, and there was the American division. So, of course, it was going to be then. 
It's the first time that two guys who have never played it down in the league, and remember, Ottawa played less than a week ago. Now these guys get thrown into the mix against Edmonton tonight. That's not ideal. Not an ideal situation to be going into a game. <laughs> no, it really isn't. And this is something that the CFL, I imagine they would like to get it this way, and part of it has to do with working with the broadcast. I'm guessing the TSN doesn't really want Tuesday night football in its heart of no. hearts either. But it's part of the reason that if the league's going to move forward, and we always talk about improvements of the game, the 10th team feels like it's so desperately needed for some form of balance in the league and also for scheduling purposes as well. Personally, I've said forever, if you're going to have four games a week, which most weeks in the CFL currently have, Give me two games on Friday and give me two games on Saturday. There might be the odd exception out there with Labor Day games and with Thanksgiving Day games, which are traditional ones in the Canadian Football League. Okay, I can live with that on a one-off in the month of September, one-off in the month of of October. But for the most part, just let people know, okay, it's Friday. There yeah. must be two games today. Oh, it's Saturday. There must be two games today. It makes a lot of sense. It keeps it simple. It avoids people having to constantly check the schedule and try to figure out. You need that reliability, right? That people know I'm always going to be able to watch games at this time. It, it, it there's, there's a lot to be said for it. In my opinion, there is. And I know that every market and every team goes, well, this night works a little better for us. At some point, you got to think about the league before you think about each individual market. You know, Saskatchewan, wow, we can hold games on Sunday. That's fine for us. We can hold Sunday games. People here care more about the Riders than the NFL. That's great. Is that the best thing for the league? Probably not. Yeah. No, it's pretty clearly not, I would say. As we mentioned off the top of the show, Calgary, Vancouver, they decided to tangle last night because that's what the schedule said they should do, Jamie, in preseason hockey. Canucks coming out with a 4-2 victory. Not many flames that you're going to see on the regular were in the lineup last night. We're going to talk some hockey here with Eric Francis of Sportsnet in Calgary, who joins us on this Tuesday. Eric, thanks for making time. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you guys? We are doing very well. We talked about the two sides last night, and that's the way the results should have gone based on the lineups that both teams trotted out, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's funny because everybody in Calgary, well, the, I don't know how many people care about preseason games. I, I submit nobody, especially since it wasn't on TV. But, you know, uh, at least it was a better effort than the night before when it was in front of 8,000 fans here at the Dome. Flames Road shot 49-15 against the Bakersfield Oilers. It was uh, humiliating, to be honest. But it, it's preseason. Even Daryl Sutter said, I, I'm just watching for individuals. I don't really care about the results. At what point does Daryl Sutter say, okay, because we saw how he lined up his groups at the beginning of camp. At what point does he say, okay, this part of preseason is over. We're going to trim away the guys who aren't going to be part of this for the most part, and we are down to the guys that I need to see play because we need to get ready to go for two weeks from now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that point is, but I, I would submit to you that it will be sooner than sooner rather than later and probably sooner than most teams like you know, a lot of teams split their, their rosters or their camps up into, say, three different skates, two different skates, and uh, it's a mixture. You know, uh, we've seen that in the past year with different coaches where it's a mixture. In each group, there are four or five stars or, you know, veterans, and then there are four or five top prospects, and then there's a bunch of kids that are just there for the experience. Here, the, the main group from day one, they were in the lines that I would submit to you that they will start the season with. So... Um, so he that, that kind of speaks to him wanting to cut to the chase uh, sooner rather than later because really the the reality is, is there are not 
there aren't many, well, there are no jobs up for grabs in this camp. There really aren't. Connor Zary and Jacob Peltier were two guys who may have been able to push for, uh, for, for a look. Zari got injured and Peltier is, uh, according to the coach is, is, is a, <laughs> the only thing he could say about him was, well, he's really young. <laughs> so, so, uh, the, the, the 13 forwards that everyone expected to start the season with this team are the 13 that are going to start the season. One of those forwards goes by the name of Matthew Kachuk. And you've got a piece up on him right now at sportsnet.ca. And it's amazing what a year will do. Because a year ago, if his contract had been one year from expiring, and I know he's an RFA, but if that had been the case, we would have been already talking about potential negotiations, about potential extensions, what those look like, and whether or not he should be the captain of the Calgary Flames. How relevant are those discussions right now based on what happened last year? Yeah, it, it changed a lot of people's outlooks. Uh, I know that. And, you know, let's first of all, Matthew Kachuk's going to be a captain in the National Hockey League. I, I don't know where it's going to be and I don't know when. But to me, if there's ever a captain out there, he's it. Uh, and I know people in Vancouver hate the guy and, and 31, uh, 30 other cities hate him too. Don't get me wrong, but when he's on your team, you absolutely love the guy, and he is the heart and soul of this team. But that heart and soul was kind of taken away from him last year, and I'm not really sure how or why. Um, and, you know, we all point to the, the 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 incident where Jake Muzzin flipped the puck at him, and he went nuts at the end of the game, and no one seemed to back him up, and blah blah blah. Either way, um, if Matthew Kachuk uh, had a five or six year contract under his belt to stay in Calgary right now. They would have already announced him to be the captain, in my opinion. But because he doesn't have that long-term commitment, and I think it's going to be pretty tough for the Calgary Flames to get him uh, under that long-term commitment anytime soon anyway. I mean, we're a year away from having to talk about any of that stuff. But uh, because he's not here long-term and there's, there's big questions as to whether he will be, then the captaincy is not – he's not being talked about as one of the potential captains of this team. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know if you want to get into that whole discussion as to – who should be the captain in this city. But to me, my take on it's always been, if there's not an obvious choice, then you don't, you don't name a captain. And to me, there isn't an obvious choice uh, for this team. Now I'm not in the room every day and I don't know all the ins and outs. Maybe every guy in that room thinks it's pretty clear, but from the guys I've talked to in the room, from the guys I've talked to in the organization, you could name any number of three or four guys. And to me, that means you're not ready to name a captain in my opinion. And Eric, with Matthew Kachuk specifically, you know, you talked about that incident with Muzzin in last season that got a lot of attention. And there, it, it seemed, at least from the outside looking in, that maybe Kachuk played less of the instigra- instigator or agitator, I should say, pest role on the ice than he had in years past. Do you get the sense that we might see a bit of a return to form in that in that sense for Matthew Kachuk this year, and he might try to embrace that role a little bit more this season? I don't know. You know, I think that's a great question because. I- when talking to him last week, you know, he, I, I wanted to get to that and see if he felt like he needed to be more involved in the post whistle stuff. And it, cause I think that motivates him. And I think a lot of people around the league think that motivates him. There's another school of thought that says he doesn't need to do that silly stuff and he needs to stop it because it affects the rest of his game. I'm in the camp that thinks that when he's in the fabric of the game, <clears throat> excuse me, and he's mucking it up with these guys after the whistle. It's when he's the most emotionally engaged in the game and when he plays his best hockey. I, I think that's been proven conclusively. Um, he says, uh, his, one of his quotes in the piece that I wrote was, uh, you know, I don't get paid for what I do in between whistles. 
Um, and you guys notice that stuff more than I do. Well, I think he notices it every bit as much as we do. He's right. He doesn't get paid for that post-whistle stuff, so maybe he's trying to suggest that he's going to cut that stuff down. I don't know. I think that without it, he could still be a you know premier player in this league with or without it. I, I think he has to figure out what, what's best for him. I think even if he went into the season and said, I'm going to not get involved in these sort of post-whistle scrums, you can have all the plans in the world, but like Mike Tyson says, all those plans change when you get punched in the nose. And uh, he's in the fabric of it all the time. He gets punched in the lows a lot, and I think you'll see him get involved in lots of post-whistle stuff, uh, as he always does. Yeah, it seems like a safe bet for sure. And I think even taking that side of things out of it and just looking at his production as a scorer and as an elite winger in the league, you know, it's interesting. There's been so much talk about, okay, the Calgary Flames are going out and acquiring Daryl Sutter-type players. Well, Matthew Kachuk, who was, of course, already there before Daryl Sutter got there again, you know, he seems like he should be the epitome of a Daryl Sutter-type player. And I look at that line that he started camp and preseason with alongside uh, Elias Lindholm and Blake Coleman, and it seems like that trio under Daryl Sutter could be primed to be really effective this year. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, you got two guys who are 200-foot players. I mean, you know, Elias Lindholm is very dependable defensively. He can shut down any guy in the league if, if asked to do so. Um, and also has an offensive upside. can get 70, 75 points uh, and 30 goals. Uh, Blake Coleman, we we saw him win two cups as, a, as the consummate 200-foot guy. But he also was on a 30-goal pace uh, two years ago when he was in Jersey before he was traded uh, to Tampa Bay. So, you know, and then Matthew Kachuk's a 30-goal scorer uh, capabilities. And so it has all the makings to me of being a great defensive, very, very uh, detail-oriented line that Sutter's asking for. But it also gives uh, Kachuk a little more leeway to be a little more offensively uh, geared, if you, if you know what I mean. Because the other two guys are so sound defensively, it allows Kachuk to be the first guy out of the zone most of the time. I, I, I like the makings of it. Um, but we'll see. I mean, there are a lot of different combinations this team has experimented with over the last year, and uh, we'll see where it all ends up. But I, I like the makings of that one for sure. Eric Francis joining us in conversation with Scott Rental and Jamie Dodd today. All right, let's talk about Johnny Gaudreau. There's another expiring contract, and the Flames, what do they do here? Eric, I know they're going to have a conversation about a contract extension. There's the specter of whether or not Gaudreau should be traded should he be moved along we've had that conversation for the last couple of years how much time do they have in your estimation to make that decision well I would say right up to the trade deadline uh but you know then there's the quandary of what if this team's in the playoff mix yeah are you really going to trade your you know your best player or one of your best players at the deadline and be a seller uh if you're right in the thick of a playoff spot I mean I think a lot of it depends on where they are in the standings, um, you know, uh, you know, I've long thought Johnny Gaudreau will be gone, but it, you know, at this point, to me, it's more about the fact that the player is less than a year away from unrestricted free agency and getting a chance to see what 31 other cities might look like and what they may want to pay him and what sort of opportunity they may present to him. Uh, does he want to be close to home? That's something a lot of people think. He says that's not the case. He's happy here. But he hasn't put his name on a contract yet. You know, my guess is uh, he's not going to sign here in Calgary. Uh, I've, I've thought that for for many years. And it's very, very hard to trade him. He, he submitted a, a, a trade list of five teams. That's all they can trade him to, five teams 
as per his contract. And, you know, I'm pretty sure all five of those teams are going to be up against the salary cap. And, you know, then those teams have to ask, well, okay, if they can only deal with five teams, how much leverage do they have? And I think the biggest question is, is Johnny Gaudreau the type of guy who we think we could add at the deadline who could put us over the top and make us win a few playoff rounds? And, you know, again, I've been quite critical of, of, of Johnny Gaudreau and the way he's underperformed in the playoffs throughout his entire career. Uh, and, and so I don't know if he's the playoff ad that teams will be looking for. So the bottom line is this. He was shopped around this summer. Um, and, and, and as in, in Brad Living's words, a lot of his players right now are worth 50 cents on the dollar. And he's not willing to give guys away at that deflated price. So, you know, Johnny Gaudreau is going to have to up his stock if he wants to get traded at the deadline. He says he wants to stay, stay till the end of the year. Can this organization at this juncture afford to keep this guy and get nothing for him? Kind of like what they did with Jerome McGinley. I don't know. That's a pretty scary proposition to me. Price for Jack Eichel remains high in Buffalo. Nick Kiprios reported last week that there's still a half dozen teams in conversation trying to get something done. Do you believe the Calgary Flames are one of those teams? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I think the Calgary Flames would love to try and get Jack Eichel. But like all those other teams in the mix, you know, the price is just so exorbitant. And the question marks are so uh, significant. Like, okay, if you're the Calgary Flames, it's probably going to cost you a Matthew Kachuk. Uh, it's probably going to cost you – and then it's going to cost you three other – first rounders either futures or, or guys who were recently drafted in the first round you're going to stick your neck out for all those assets for a guy who may not play this year who may not play till christmas i don't know uh this is a pretty important season for this organization and this general manager and to give up all those assets and be unsure when you're going to get that guy in the lineup you got to be pretty confident in your future to be able to make a move like that and uh and I don't know if the Flames are in that situation right now. It's, you know, but again, to be fair, every team is thinking the same thing. Boy, there's so many question marks. We love Eichel when he's healthy, whenever that is. But but when is it, and at what cost? And, and a lot of teams have all said no to everything right now because there are too many question marks. Well, and because Eric, you know, you mentioned the uncertainty around Jack Eichel's health and when he could even play again this year. You know, I, I imagine Buffalo is kind of hoping, hey, maybe if one of these teams that that's interested, if they start struggling at the beginning of the year, maybe they'll meet our asking price because they want to get Jack Eichel. But as you said, from Calgary's perspective, even if they struggle to start the season, I'm not sure that would necessarily change the calculation for them and that they would all of a sudden be willing to meet Buffalo's asking price because they don't know when they're going to get Jack Eichel in the lineup in that scenario. Yeah, and if the Calgary Flames get off to a bad start this year, um, then, like I said earlier, it kind of changes, I think, their perspective on Johnny Gaudreau. Um, and, 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 and maybe they think, okay, well, maybe we have to do a start of a, a bit of a – call it a rebuild or call it just a swapping out of the core. Because the big question for this organization going into the summer was who from the core is going to get swapped out? Because clearly it's been proven over the years that this core can't get it done when it matters most. Um, and 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 basically, he's basically admitted he wanted to switch some people out of the core, but at fifty cents on the dollar, he couldn't affect the sort of change that he, he needed to. So maybe now, you know, maybe a, a poor start, you start to rejig things and maybe send guys out. But then, if you're rebuilding to some degree, is Jack Eichel the the ad you want when you're rebuilding? Anyway, we're 
I'm getting way ahead of ourselves because rebuild is not in the vocabulary here in Calgary right now. This is a team that's got quite a lot of veterans that are, you know, their time is now. Um, so, you know, I think the interest is there because that would be a major shakeup that they were looking for. Uh, but, man, at what cost? It's it's scary. And I know that uh, there are several GMs that are looking on there, that list of six that Kipper is talking about. A lot of these guys, I'm sure, have lost sleep thinking about all the, the possibilities <laughs> with the Eichel situation. Yeah, not least of which I'm sure is Kevin Adams in Buffalo losing some sleep over the whole thing. Oh, yeah. But, Eric, looking at you know who the Flames have in camp, and as you said – you know, at the beginning of our chat, it's pretty clear who's going to make this team. And just the way they've set up their groups in training camp and in the preseason makes that obvious. Having said that, what are the biggest questions about this Flames team that still need to be answered in the rest of the preseason? Oh, uh, well, I you know, they all revolve around defense because offensively, like I said, the four lines are pretty much set in stone, if you ask me. Um their big question mark is, you know, how do you fill the shoes of Mark Giordano? And obviously, you know, no team in the league could just go out and fill the shoes of a guy who's three years removed from a from a Norris Trophy. And on top of that, was your captain and your heart and soul of your organization. You're, you know, one of your heart and souls right there with Kachuk. Um, but it's not so much about missing him now because the guys are already getting past that. Life goes on. It's about okay who's filling those 24 minutes a night that Mark Giordano used to fill. So Nikita to Zadorov, you know, they've, they've got him penciled in as a shutdown defenseman, but Sutter seemed to suggest the other day that, okay, he's been a shutdown defenseman in the past, but is he a good shutdown defenseman? <laughs> I mean, Sutter's so, so blunt about these things. He needs, he needs proof that this guy's going to be good enough to go up against the other team's top players. And if that's the case, then maybe he's paired with Chris Tanev. If not, maybe he's paired with Rasmus Anderson. Maybe he's bumped down to the third pairing. Maybe Yusuf Alamaki in this market is ready to step up and be a top four guy. Um, there are a lot of question marks about the blue line on this team. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, because they've got their three core pieces, and that's Tanev, Rasmus Anderson, and Noah Hannafin. Um, they're, they're confident with those three guys, but after that, there's a lot of question marks, a lot of youth. Uh, and a lot of praying going on uh, on the part of management, the coach, and the fans. As you are well aware, the Flames exist in a division in which many teams can make a case for being a playoff team this year. Everybody seems to have Vegas locked in after that, probably Edmonton, maybe. But, hey, the Flames can make a good case if they want. The Canucks can make a good case if they want. When you peek over the Rockies and look at the West Coast team, known as the Vancouver Canucks, that did the opposite of the Flames. Went out and made some massive changes in the offseason. What do you see? I, I think that they're underrated. You know, I mean, you guys are right in the heart of it, and you know all the talk about your team. But I think outside Vancouver, I think a lot of people are counting them out. And, uh, I mean, we obviously have to go with the assumption that, um, you know, the two big guns are going to get signed at some point in time, assuming they do. God, I love the top six in Vancouver. Like, I think it's potent. Uh, it's such a potent roster, and I think there's some depth there, and some guys can move in and out of that top six. Um, you know, I'm fascinated with Hoaglander. Uh, you know, I, I, in short, I'm very, very impressed, and I think that's the third-place team in the Pacific this year. Uh, I think the Flames, you know, are going to be battling with Vancouver to try and get that third spot. I think that's the goal, in my opinion, here in Calgary. Um, I, I think 
in Vancouver, my humble opinion, you asked me, you know, I, I worry about your blue line, especially if Hamannick's not in the picture. Um, you know, I think there's some question marks there, but I love your goaltending and I love your offensive capabilities. And I love the, 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 the bottom line, which to me is, is they're going to have a big bounce back from last season. They had everything going against them last year and went through hell. And, and now it's a total fresh, clean slate. Once you get those two guys in, hopefully you get them back in in a timely fashion. That team could be firing pretty uh, on a whole lot more cylinders than they had last year once they get going. I, I really like the outlook for the Vancouver Canucks now and moving forward. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great looking team to me. And I'm not just pandering. <laughs> you don't do that. I know you don't do that. Hey, Eric, great stuff. <laughs> Thank you very much for the contribution here today, man. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday and we'll talk soon. See you boys. Always enjoy chatting with you. Let's do it again soon. Absolutely. That is Eric Francis weighing in on what's going on with the Calgary Flames. I do think the Kachuk question is a really interesting one. A year ago, people would have said that's the next captain undoubtedly of the Calgary Flames. The contract situation and the way the negotiations went down the last time, it clouds it. And obviously he had a down year. The one thing that everybody thought, that myself included, when Daryl Sutter came to town, well, I'll tell you who's going to perform well under Daryl Sutter. It's Matthew Kachuk. Like, that's the that's the kind of coach that's yes. going to bring out the Matthew Kachuk that we've known for most of his career and haven't seen to this point of the season. It didn't work. He didn't even play that much under Daryl Sutter. Now there's been an off season. I think many are counting on Matthew Kachuk for a bounce back year. His future with the Calgary Flames. Can you imagine a year ago us having a conversation about it being up in the air? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a really dramatic turnaround. And to your point about a bounce back, they need him to have a bounce back in a bad way. And I agree with what Eric Francis had to say. I think the, you know, Kachuk, Lindholm, Coleman trio that they've rolled out to start things here, I think that has a lot of potential and could be very effective. But of those three players, I mean, it really is going to come down to Matthew Kachuk, right? At least to elevate that line to the height of its potential. They need him to be that elite player. And I think it does start with some of the extracurricular stuff he gets into, right? As Eric Francis said, that seems to be when he's most engaged and most motivated. Have a couple texts coming in. He does not seem like captain material. Kachuk as a captain will be an absolute embarrassment to the league. It all depends on what type of captain you're looking for. Like, he exhibits the qualities that many captains in this league have had. Because opposing fans, as based on those texts, and I know where that's coming from. Those are coming from the West Coast. They don't like him. And, yeah. and that's, part of that is what you want in your captain, depending on how you are as a fan. Well, you want your captain to be the team's emotional leader to a certain degree, right? Not every captain is that, and there can be other players on the team that fill that role. But when you have a player who so clearly has the potential to be the emotional leader and also be probably the best player on the team, that's usually what we think of as a captain, right? Okay, he's a guy who's really, really good, not afraid to to lead by example, not afraid to lead vocally. That's what we think of as a captain in the NHL. It's Scott Rintoul and Jamie Dodd making the turn at the halfway point of the program. They say that radio broadcasters are prone to hyperbole. I think that maybe teams and and entities looking to sell something would be at the top of that list. I think I got proof of that with something I received today. I'll explain next. It pertains to the NFL. It's Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd.